Welcome to the St George's Leeds Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the talk. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Acts of the Apostle, chapter 16, from verse 16 to 34. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling, or telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirits, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. When they brought them before the magistrate and saved, these men are Jews and are throwing, throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrate ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And they had, and they had been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in the studs. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the others and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, this was such so there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison door flew open and everyone's chain came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open and when he, and he threw his sword and was about to kill himself. He brought, sorry, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for light, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, says, what must I do to be saved? 
They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had, he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, hope you are well. Hope you're having a nice summer. I'm never too sure when summer is in England. Um, and that's because, well, because of so many things. But one of the reasons is, um, in my mind, summer starts in June. But then, for some reason, I'm told summer starts end of June towards July. And so I have this time when it's, I think, summer, but not quite summer. Um, but I'm glad the sun is out. My wife and I and the family uh, came back from home. We come from Uganda. We came back yesterday. And it's summer all year round in Uganda. And so um, we had a lovely time. The kids, it was their first time going to Uganda. Um, they spent about two months there. I didn't spend as much time with them. We were going on holiday. Then I, called back, I was called back to work, and I ended up uh, in Kenya for most of my time. Um, but it's amazing the number of things that our old eldest, Netanya, she's, she's gone to, uh, to, to, to the children's school. But it's amazing the kind of things she picked up. One of my favorites is um, a term in my language. It's Luganda. Um, it's Banange. Now, Banange is, depending on the intonation and when it is spoken, can, say, can mean anything from my goodness to gosh or what are you doing? So it really depends on how it is used. And I was speaking to her on the phone. I was in, in Nairobi and I was you know, uh, calling by uh, WhatsApp with her and she, was, she, she, she looked at me and said, Papa, put the phone on. Banange. <laughs> and for a moment, I wasn't sure whether she had actually said it because she said it exactly the way it should have been said. And the expression was very Ugandan. Her accent was very Ugandan when she said it. And I asked my wife, Diana, I said, did she just say Banange? Diana was laughing, so I guess... She had said Banangi. Um, but she really enjoyed her time in, in, uh, in Uganda. Uh, she spent some time in, in uh, Nairobi too. Um, and when she was coming back, she had all these people that she had met, and she was just mentioning them one by one. I want to go and see so-and-so. I need to go and see and so Can you call so-and-so? And it, in many ways, made me think about um, when you are going to meet 
or when you, when you meet people that you know are family, when you meet people that embrace you and, and love you, and how often um, that transforms the way you feel, not just about them, but also about yourself, to know for sure that there is someone out there that actually loves me, that's not mommy or daddy. I have options. There are aunties and uncles and people out there who care about me. And yes, mommy and daddy say they love me, and yes, this and that, but I know for sure because I've experienced love and affection and, and acceptance by people outside my immediate family. And we'll go a little bit about, uh, we'll go back to that uh, towards the end, but today we continue our series um, on transforming the city. Um, and today we are looking at uh, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and transforming justice. And our reading today is, is uh, you know, taken, it takes us to Philippi, where we have um, this slave girl, slave female, depending on which, which version you read. Um, and she has this op oppressive spirit. Now, I don't know how that was understood in those days, but suffice to say that this oppressive spirit enabled her to, to see things, and she'd say those things. And we'll be discussing a number of, of, of things related to that passage uh, that pertain to justice. And I'll mainly focus on two things. One is our attitude towards justice, and the other is our motive, or at, um, our motivation. Um, and in both instances, we'll be looking at, you know, how our attitude might be affected as champions of justice, but also how our attitudes might be affected as victims of injustice. And in the same case, how our motives might be affected if we are champions of justice, and how they might be affected if we are victims of injustice. Um, and then, you know, we'll conclude with some personal reflections and about how that might be applied in our personal lives. Um, and then we'll pray. Now, one of the things that I find very interesting about this reading, and it struck me as soon as I read it uh, again, specifically for this uh, someone, was um, the attitude with which Paul and Silas deal with this girl, this oppressed slave. It seemed to me that, you know, um, their actions towards her did not come from a place of concern. They, at least the passage doesn't tell us that they were concerned about her well-being. It seems to me that it, it came more because they, they got, they had had enough of her shouting at them. And it's interesting because, actually, the things that she was talking about were true. She was following them around and declaring, these people are messengers of the Most High God, which was true. Um, but after a while, I think they, they got really tired of this, and they said, you know what, we need to deal with it. Um, and I think they felt inconvenienced. Um, and they decided, you know, we need to do something about that. And so they cast out this oppressing spirit. 
And the question that came to mind when I was thinking about that was, was that the right attitude? Was that the right attitude with which they should have approached this lady who's clearly, from their perspective, oppressed, and they should have known she's a slave? I don't know. I'm not sure whether that was the right attitude or not. The one thing that I know is that Jesus does talk a little bit about our attitude towards, um, in our actions, the attitude that, that informs our actions. And in Mark chapter 12, I think from verse 41 to 44, um, Jesus is observing people that are giving in the church. Yeah? Um, and then the rich people come in and one of them gives maybe the equivalent of a thousand pounds and walks away, very satisfied that they've done their duty and given as they are commanded to. And another rich person comes and, you know, maybe 2,000 pounds, no problem, gives it in, and on and on and on. And then there's this widow who comes and it's clear she's poor by the way she's dressed and it's clear that she doesn't have much and then she gives, I don't know how much it would have been now, maybe a pound. And Jesus is looking at all this giving and he turns to his disciples and says, you know, this widow has given much more than the rich person. And I think the disciples were a bit confused and so he had to elaborate and he said, well, these people have a lot of money and out of their abundance have given this much. It hasn't affected them. It, it won't affect what they eat today. It won't affect what they'll eat tomorrow. Maybe they'll even get a tax break out of that. Not too much for them. This lady, on the other hand, all she has is maybe one pound fifty, and she's giving in one pound. She's giving out of her poverty and she's giving all that she has. And so in a sense, she's given a lot more than the rich person who has put in 2,000 pounds. I don't know what that speaks to you when, when it comes to our attitude towards um, things to do with justice, but what it does to me is that it, it tells me that Sometimes what we give and how much we give reflects our priorities. And for this woman, giving everything that she had reflected that actually she was all in. She was all in towards this cause of praising the Lord. And perhaps in our uh, pursuit of justice, one of the questions you might have is what's our attitude towards it? Are we pursuing something because it's convenient for us? Are we pursuing it because we care passionately about it? Are we pursuing it because we think, well, in principle, it's the right thing to do, so we'll do it? Whatever our convictions, it cause, it, it's, it's a cause for, for reflection on what our attitude towards justice um, is. 
But then as I was thinking about that and wondering, is it really appropriate in church to reflect on, perhaps criticize Paul, St. Paul, and his attitude towards, um, you know, this woman? I thought about it the other way around. As a victim of injustice, what about the, you know, the slave girl who was freed of this spirit? Did she really care what the motive was behind being freed? Did, was that something she, you know, when, when, when the spirit was driven out of her, was that the first thing that came to mind? Ha, huh, why are you doing this? Are you doing it for profit? Do you have some hidden agenda? Maybe. Maybe she was so used of people using her that the first thing that she thought about when this was done was, now that this spirit has been driven out, am I now a slave to this new person? I don't know. But then again, Jesus does offer us some insight into our attitude as it should be, as victims of injustice. Um, I think it is also in Mark, uh, certainly in, in, in other uh, books, or in other Gospels, that Jesus actually um, heals a man who was born blind on the Sabbath. Now, that, that was a problem for the, for the Pharisees because you weren't supposed to be doing any work on the Sabbath. And so this man, he had lived, he, has, he, had, he had been blind all his life. Jesus tells him, you know, uh, put some mud uh, on your eyes and uh, you will see. And he does that and he sees. And there are witnesses there. And the Pharisees look at this miracle. And their attitude towards it was, well, is he the one that actually healed him? And if he is, has he broken the law? That was the first thing that came to their mind. And they had a very, you know, big debate about it. Was it right? Was it not right? And I think there were very fine points being made by either side of the arguments. There are people who are saying, it is wrong to do this, it's our tradition, you shouldn't be doing this. And that's true a lot of times, you know. Uh, people care a lot about tradition. People care a lot about what is appropriate and what is deemed inappropriate. And so there was a point there to be made. Others were saying, who cares whether it's our tradition? Someone was blind, now they see. That is what should be mattering. And clearly, this is a son of God. And is he really one that you know, denies, uh, that doesn't do things as they should be done as the law commands? And so they asked the blind man. They said, well, he's not blind anymore. They asked the man and said, well, you're the one who has been uh, made to see again now. Tell us, what do you think? And he, his answer was this. He said, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. There is one thing I know. I was blind, but now I see. I'm not too sure how you, you know, slice that. At the end of the day, all I know is that I can see, and I am happy, and I'm a lot better off for that. What is our attitude towards justice or just causes? 
or things that are done in the pursuit of justice is a first option for us to sort of try to scrutinize and find fault in anything and everything. I was having an interesting debate with someone uh, recently about the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And they were saying, you know, the Black Lives Matter thing has moved on into a very, very gray ground. It moved on from something about justice, and now is, it has an agenda that we are not, I'm not too sure I agree with. Um, and, uh, you know, we're about three people, another, and another person was saying, you know, it has, Black Lives Matter is basically the face of wokeness, and I'm not too sure about whether I support being woke or not. And we had a very interesting discussion, and there were some valid you know, concerns about what Black Lives Matter is and what it isn't and what it should be standing for and what it... We went on and on and on. But coming off, off from that discussion, it was certainly invigorating for me. I went back to thinking, well, okay, there are arguments to be made, again, on both sides. They're very good arguments, but at the end of the day, at the heart of the matter, can we at least acknowledge that there is something that is not right, that this movement with all its flaws and all its issues is pointing us to? Can we at least look at that and, and, and acknowledge that there is something wrong about the way we treat each other in the world that needs to change? And sometimes God brings us things, God, God brings us blessings in our lives, and we are so concerned about how they came about that we lose sight of them themselves. Sometimes we are so, you know, hell-bent on getting every little bit right and understood that we forget about the product. And sometimes things can come our way that are not as perfect as we would like them to be. Maybe they are not the way that we would have ideally wanted them to be, but they are in the right direction. And if someone has been a victim of child abuse, of rape, of domestic violence, if someone is a refugee, they don't really care where the money that is coming to help them comes from. I mean, if they had food, maybe, they might be able to think about that. If they had somewhere to stay, maybe they might think about that. But in a situation where you literally do not know whether the next minute is going to find you alive, the help that comes your way is truly accepted and truly appreciated. And I wonder whether that is the attitude that we should adopt when thinking about justice. That, you know, we, in, in this broken world, there might not be a perfect solution for everything, that the right path towards um, anything we care about that is around justice might not be through one single party, that it might not be a single, you know, it might not be the Tories, it might not be the 
Labour Party, it might be a, a combination of both of them, it might be a combination that has none of them. But if we focus so much on where it has come from and who has said it, we are at risk of losing the big picture, which is, I was blind, but now I see. The other thing that um, I was thinking about when it came to, to this verse was the motives. The motive behind our pursuit for justice. You know, when this woman was, who was oppressed was, was saved from, from it, when this spirit was driven out of her by Paul and Silas, her owners were very angry about it. Why? Because they were benefiting from it. They had something that had been taken away from them, their income. And they were not too happy about it, and they said, we need to pursue justice for ourselves. Because look, in those days, slavery was allowed. There's no contention here in the Bible that talks about you know, whether this person should have been a slave or not. But these people felt they've been robbed of their income, and they, they dragged Paul and Silas to the magistrate, and they said, you know what? These people are advocating for ideals that conflict with our, um, our status as Romans. You know, they, they, bring, they are bringing in a culture that's unacceptable. It's not, it's not a Roman culture to do this. And so they need to be flogged. And they are flogged. And, and, and you know, reading this from our generation, it might seem a clear cut case of, well, they were wrong. But by show of hands, please do show your hands, how many of us love tea? Yeah. How many of us don't love tea, but really prefer coffee? Yeah, so I think about 80% of us would, well, at least 80% at least of us would uh, be happy with coffee and tea. One of the things that I, I found very surprising here when I first came uh, to the UK was how passionate people were about their tea. They had to have their tea and they had to have it a certain way. And um, when I went to the supermarkets, there were aisles and aisles of, of various you know, teas. One of the ones that caught my eye and is now a constant in our house is Yorkshire tea, yeah? No bias at all, we just happened to love Yorkshire tea. And it tastes a lot different from every other tea that I've tested, or so I'm supposed to say. <laughs> um, but where does Yorkshire tea come from? Because the first thing that came to my mind when I thought about Yorkshire tea was, well, I've got to visit these tea plantations <laughs> in Yorkshire. I genuinely, honestly thought there was some place in Yorkshire where this tea was grown. And, well, it turned out that this Yorkshire tea, some of it might actually have come from Uganda, where I came from. And some of it might have come from Colombia. And so the question was, why is it Yorkshire tea? 
Um, and I was told, you know, that, that there was a huge debate I had with, with someone who was passionate about it being Yorkshire tea. Said, it's the process by which this tea is made. I said, well, tea is grown, so surely the person that grows the tea should be able to claim it's from them. Say, no, no, depends on how it was dried and how it was then brewed. And then they came up with all these very technical arguments about it. I said, well, you know what? I don't care about what your argument is. I think there's something fundamentally wrong about this. Do you know that Germany earns a lot more from coffee? the production and selling of coffee than all the African nations that produce coffee combined. The amount of coffee that all African coffee producers make is over and above 50% of the world's coffee. Not, not, not the UK's coffee, but the world's coffee. But you have Germany making more money from that than all of these countries combined. And there are people who would argue, well, I like Italian coffee. I like German coffee. But actually, it's not grown in Italy. It's not grown in Spain. It's not grown in somewhere in South America, somewhere in Africa. And so there's something fundamentally wrong, I think, about this idea of British tea, of German coffee, of Swiss chocolate. But we can make arguments, and some of them quite valid, about why it is called Swiss chocolate and why it is called um, you know, German tea or why it's called Yorkshire tea. And, and some of them are not wrong. And I think it's pretty much the same arguments that these slave owners were making. They owned the slave. They had rights to what, they, what the slave did. If they, worked, if they were working in, in, a, you know, in a field, they would earn the rights to whatever they, they've worked on. Why has this Paul and Silas taken away their right to income? There was a very fine point there, and I'm sure if they'd gone to court, they might have gotten compensation for that. But God calls us to a different kind of justice, a different motive. And as people who are champions of um, justice, we need to ask ourselves, what, a, what is our motive? Why am I there? Why am I pushing for this? Is it because I will benefit from it personally? Is it because I care about it in principle? What is behind our motive matters, and God does see that. But then what about the victims? What, is, what should be your motive? If you are a victim of injustice, what, what, what is it that would motivate you to, to act? And there are two instances in this, uh, in, in this reading that we might want to think of. The first is that Paul and Silas were imprisoned and they, you know, they felt uh, unjustly imprisoned. And they could have done something about it there and then, but they didn't. Actually, what they did was they 
allowed to get into prison. And while there, they started praying. They started praising God. And the Bible says that as they were doing so, there was um, an earthquake and the jail doors broke open. Now, if you were a victim of an injustice and there's an opportunity presented to you to correct that justice, because them moving out of there would have, in all honesty, been the just thing to do because they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. The knee-jerk reaction probably, I don't know about you, perhaps you're a better person than I. If I was the one and I was in jail and the jail doors were broken and it's midnight, with a very good chance that if I walk out, no one will see me, I'm gone. I'm out of there. They didn't, they stayed. And the jailer came and noticed that the, the doors was open, were open. The first thing that came to his mind is, I'm done for. I need to kill myself before I'm killed. I can't be humiliated by this. And he was about to kill himself. And you know, Paul says, no, no, don't kill yourself. We're all in. He brings the light, found, finds everyone accounted for. And in that moment, overcome by the actions of the jailed, the jailer realizes that he's the one that's imprisoned. He's the one that has all these biases and all these misunderstandings of the people that he's supposed to be protecting. And so he whips and comes before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? And this is one of the first instances in the Bible that I th can think of where the someone was preached after someone had actually accepted to become a Christian. Because he comes to them and says, I want to be a Christian. What do I, need? What do, I do? And Paul and Silas tell, them, tell him what to do. And then he, they go home and someone is preached. But by then it is preached amongst brothers and sisters and not just the jailer and the jailed. Sometimes God asks us to do things that would be counterintuitive in the pursuit of justice. Sometimes it might be that you forgive someone who has done something wrong to you because God knows that that person did it, not necessarily out of anger, but because they were having a hard day at work. Maybe they said a harsh word to you. And in your response, instead of pursuing the justice you are entitled to, of reporting it to HR, of, of uh, saying something right back, you say, you know what, I forgive you. Or maybe you don't say anything at all. And this person notices by your actions that they have done wrong. But they also notice something different about the way you have handled the situation. And maybe that's your opportunity to witness for Christ, to do something that you would have otherwise not been able to do. Our attitude towards these things matters. But then there was another, you know, the day after, um, you know, this time around, Paul sort of turned the other cheek when it came to this. But there was another incident where that's not what happened. The next day, uh, the jailer comes and says, the magistrate says, you can go. And Paul says, oh, wait a minute. We have a problem. 
you beat me and flogged me in public for no reason, even though I was a Roman just like you. And now you want to let go of me quietly without anyone noticing. I'm not for that. And he stood his ground and said, you must come and you must escort me out of this place. And the magistrate heard that and they were afraid because you know what? They had flogged a, a Roman. They, were, they had imprisoned him because they thought he was going against Roman culture. And he was a Roman. They were afraid. They did as he'd asked and they publicly, you know, escorted him out of the way, out of the jail and he walked out. Sometimes turning the other cheek won't do. Sometimes standing for what should have been done and insisting that it be corrected is what needs to be done. But again, this wasn't necessarily done because of any other reason. I think Paul knew quite well either way he was going to walk out for free, or rather, he was going to walk out into freedom. But I think it was done to correct a wrong in principle. And every now and then we are called to stand up for what is right in principle and say the thing that should be said or have others say it as it should have been said because that is what God has called us to do. And when we are called in that moment, we need to answer the call by being sure and certain and stand firmly on the side of truth, on the side of justice. Now, all these are very lofty things, and sometimes it can be very hard to, you know, relate how this might apply to our everyday life. And so I'd like to conclude with some reflections on my own uh, um, about justice and injustice and motives and attitudes. When my wife and I had just gotten married, uh, they say the first year or two, uh, you know, honeymoon years. And I'm not sure that's necessarily true because in our experience, the first year or so was full of fights. We argued about almost anything and everything. And we really argued. And we really shouted at each other. And we said some very nasty things at each other. And I remember that one of the things that I did very often was when I felt insulted. You know, you'd start an argument about, you know, where the toothpaste should have been, and then someone says something nasty, and then it ceases to become about where the toothpaste was, and it becomes about, how could you say that to me? That means you don't love me. And why did you marry me if you don't love me? Why don't we just get a divorce? The world is coming to an end. Basically, it moved from toothpaste into something that was, you know. I remember quite often that uh, when I felt hurt by what my wife told me, um, I responded by doing something that many men that I know do, which is give her the silent treatment. And I was very good at that. And for two days, three days, I remember one of the arguments took a week in which I was just quiet and not engaging and not saying anything. And she knew I was angry and she'd ask me about something and I'd just keep quiet. 
I know the thing about silent treatment is that it's the, it's the perfect response to arguments because technically speaking, you haven't done anything wrong. You're just quiet. You don't want to talk. Do you want me to talk? Do you want now to force me? You forced me to do the other things. Now you want to force me to talk. Is that right? Is that, do you think that's right? So silent treatment sort of gives you the, the edge over things, the upper end of things. You feel you're in control. But you know what? Deep down when you go to sleep, you know it is wrong. And you can make very fine arguments about why it is right. You can say all the things that need to be said about it, but you know it's wrong. And you know it's wrong not just because it, the motive is wrong. You know it's going to hurt her and you're doing it because it's going to hurt her. But also, your attitude is not right. Or at least mine wasn't. And when I learned, probably still learning, when I learned that just how deeply silent treatment hurt my wife and started working on it, it wasn't an easy thing to do because that was, you know, my fallback position for arguments. Because when we got into arguments, more often than not, she had finer points than I. And so I had, you know, um, I had this last resort. But when we know that we are doing something for the wrong motives, and with the wrong attitude, it really doesn't matter whether we think it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether we can argue it out in the courts of law. God calls us to a higher sense of justice. And so in conclusion, what, what, what we have is with injustice, the motives and the attitudes that uh, we have when taking the actions we do, they matter. And sometimes they matter so much that they can be the difference between saving a life, as Paul did to the jailer, and being a witness of Christ, on the one hand, and on the other being an obstacle to God's blessings. And so the question is, how do we know how to apply a particular motive or a particular attitude? And the answer for me is that I really don't know. What I do know is that God has asked us to come into fellowship with him. And he has promised that when we call to him, he will answer that when we seek his face, we shall find That when we knock, the door shall be opened unto us. And in my particular situation, I've found that each time that I've called upon him for guidance on how to deal with something that's unjust, might be personal, it might be about a family member, it might be a general thing, as it is with uh, social injustice, it is something I care passionately about. I find that God tends to answer. Sometimes I hear him speak to me, leading me to the direction I was thinking about. Other times I, I, I hear this, I feel this forbearing about something I was about to do and I take pause. Sometimes I read the Bible and it's clear he's speaking to me through a verse. But whatever way he speaks to you, when we are in constant fellowship with him, God has a way of showing us 
This is the way. Walk in it. And I pray that as we pursue justice in whatever form and whatever way we do, in our city that we love, as we take as much tea, whether Yorkshire tea or something else, as we, we, as we love doing, as we pursue our everyday life, that we shall be in communion with God and shall seek his face and shall seek his will in our lives about the ways that we can be agents of justice in the world that we live in. Thank you for listening to the St George's Lead Sermon Podcast. For more talks or information, visit stgs.org.uk.